Good afternoon and welcome to the panel on RNZ National News uh, to hand. This afternoon it's been announced that embattled Labour MP Stuart Nash will leave politics at October's election. He was fired from Cabinet for revealing sensitive information to individuals who funded his election campaign. It's a scandal that has now gone wider than Stuart Nash. The question really is now, is the New Zealand government transparent? Speaking of which, it's just been announced that the government will take steps to make lobbying more transparent. The four changes are a commission report on lobbying activities, which will come back next year. Swipe card access will be stopped. Third-party lobbyists to produce a code of conduct and refreshed cabinet manual will be published, saying ministers should not be influenced by future employment opportunities. So to discuss is someone who's written on the subject, Dr Bryce Edwards, a lecturer in government and public policy at Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, he's the director of the Democracy Project. Dr Edwards, kia ora. Uh, hi, Wallace. Uh, and, of course, uh, Guy Nespina's uh, series on lobbying uh, is still on site at rnz.co.nz. But first to Nash. He's gone after a long, quoting, long family conversation and an eye to the future. He said, I've decided to stand down from politics at this year's election. Uh, Bryce, any surprises here? No, this was always the, the likely outcome from that mega scandal that he faced. And I think it's really for the, the good of both the, the Labour government and himself to really draw a line under the scandal. It really puts it to bed, I think, for most of the public. And, um, you know, he'll go on to, to doing something else. He's a talented, you know, person. He'll probably end up being a lobbyist, in fact. <laughs> In terms of the other issues and the wider issue, the Ombudsman uh, was considering an investigation. What will happen to that? Uh, will that still, you know, continue? Absolutely, yes. Uh, no, it's, it's really important then that the Ombudsman's office does actually straighten out what went wrong that led to that information request from a journalist being basically suppressed. Um, so there might be less interest from the public now because there'll be a sense of the, the story finishing. But no, there is much more that we need to pursue on this to make sure that we've got squeaky, clean politics. OK, I will get our panel to jump in. I know that uh, Phil especially will have issues on this, probably being a lobbyist, and he probably has a card as well. Um, but a commissioned report on lobbying activities, it'll come back next year. Your response to that, Dr Edwards? Oh, look, this is fantastic news. So, yeah, I congratulate the, the government on taking this uh, this move. Uh, it's, it's what a lot of campaigners for transparency have wanted. And, you know, these are difficult areas. They're not easy to fix up. So it does need some proper investigation. You can't just come up with some quick flip. If, you know, quick fix uh, solutions. I mean, yes, they've had the three new, you know, short steps to take immediately, but you do need a, a bigger examination, and that's what the government's doing. So, yeah, I think that's good. 
Yeah, all right. Uh, well, Phil, uh, can I ask you? Can I ask you something? You don't have to answer it, but sure. did, did you have a did you have a lobby card? I think I still do. You still do? I, I think I, my first one was given to me by Ruth Dyson when she was Minister of Labour, which is I had one chin back then and some hair. I mean, it's a long time ago. So, so explain had, it. What does that mean? Well, and what sort of access does in the, that give you? In the you? old days, you used to be able to go to the minister's office, but that was what, straight straight in. Yeah, but it was uh, the Parliament was a very open place back then. Lots of people would go to a minister's <laughs> office. Was, when I first came into the Parliament, you could park your car outside, for God's sake. You know, it's changed a lot since then. And the security was really stepped up during the key government era when there was a... Somebody got through and made a protest in the minister's office. So now these much-vaunted lobbyist cards actually get you through the first level of security. They get you past the metal detector. That's it. After that, you've still got to line up like everyone else. So I think... What the government's just announced today is just a big red herring. There were no lobbyists involved in anything that Nash just did there. There were some donors involved, and he just did some silly things. The real culprit here is the Official Information Act and how it was abused. And it's been increasingly abused. Helen Clark's government abused it. John Key took it to the next level, and these guys have taken it to DEFCON 5. I don't trust that at all. And, in fact, the, the real issue here is the Prime Minister's office and Nash's office trying to manipulate the official Okay, I want to come back so to the OIA a bit later on. on all that. right, all right, all right. Well, let, do you want to respond to that, Bryce? Oh, look, I, I agree with most of what Phil said there. He, he's right to target the OIA as needing the major reform. And, and yes, some of these things announced today are quite small. You know, they're kind of, I'm not a bit sure about red hearings, but they're more symbolic than substantial. So he's right about that, yes. Okay, what, what questions do you have, Verity? Kia ora, Bryce. Um, I had a question. I, from the outside, was just looking at the very superficial differences between lobbying in Australia and New Zealand. And from what I can see, like as the layman's person speaking here, is that in Australia, all the lobbyists have to be registered and you can search them and you can find out very easily who they are. But we don't have the same um, like basic registry and tracking system in New Zealand for lobbyists. And I'm just curious why. Why? Yeah, that's a great question, Verity, and and I've been stumbling trying to answer that. Um, It's mainly because, well, my view is that we have a kind of culture of complacency in this country. We keep on being lauded, you know, as being one of the least corrupt countries around the world, and, you know, relative to other ones, we probably are, but that doesn't mean we don't have problems with uh, vested interests and wealth-buying influence. And so, yeah, I just think uh, in other countries there's been more public pressure, uh, distrust about the political process that's led to tightening up on by creating registers of lobbyists. I think that will now happen in New Zealand. I, I hope so. It's a pity that the government hasn't announced that today, but I think that will come from that review that they have initiated. You're not really that convinced, Phil. <laughs> well, who's a You're lobbyist? You're just not convinced. Who's a lobbyist now? Uh, are we, are we, am I a lobbyist? I hardly talk to politicians. You know, is the CTU a lobbyist? Because they talk to lots of them. Well, it can be soft power, can't it? It can be soft diplomacy. It can be... It, lobbying can be uh, having a catch-up with a... Exactly. Quote, unquote, mate. But that still wields a certain um, measure of influence. Quite right. And, yeah. and if you want to meet it, a politician... It doesn't, have to, it doesn't need to be a professional business meeting. It can be really precisely. soft stuff. Bryce? Yeah, look, Phil's right. It's very hard to define what lobbying is. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with lobbying. You know, it's basically participation in the political system. We all should be, you know, lobbying uh, you know, politicians. Um so, yes, that, that's what makes it tricky, and that's why back in 2012 the Green Party had a bill uh, to try and bring a, a register, but they didn't manage to really define what a lobbyist was. Oh. And it just, 
about meant everyone would be, you know, have to be part of this register. And you have to be very careful not to over-regulate politics in a sense oh, that right. yeah, everyone gets caught up in it. Just, uh, if you haven't heard the news, this just a hand that's came out at four o'clock. The Prime Minister has asked Parliament Speaker to remove swipe card access to Parliament for business, non-government sector and union representatives. Chris Hipkins is asking third-party lobbyists to develop a voluntary code of conduct and has offered the Ministry of Justice help to draft the code. Um, the Cabinet Manual is being refreshed to make it clear that while in office Ministers' co- conduct and decisions should not be influenced by the prospect of expectation of future employment with a particular organisation uh, or sector. And I just want to come back to this notion of the Official Information Act and this is what Phil said is the real issue. Um, Does the OIA, Bryce, in your opinion, need to include criminal penalties which could apply for deliberate non-compliance? Because we're we're seeming to get a lot of, um, can we say, non-compliance when OIAs are filed? Look, the the OIA legislation is actually very good and it, it mostly works, well, a lot of it works quite well. It's just that it is abused at times. And there's no sort of mechanisms for, you know, yeah, punishing those that have an interest in misusing it or being incompetent in it. And so if you did have some sort of punishments, that I think would tie things up quite quickly. So, yes, I, I, I join the call of those people that want to bring in some sort of, uh, yeah, criminal, criminal penalties uh, in government departments, essentially. And a yes, final, uh, uh, Dr. a yes to uh, a register for lobbyists in Aotearoa? I think that is the, the bare minimum of what we need to uh, make things a bit more transparent. Once you've got transparency, uh, I think you can be a lot more able to judge what's going on in politics. And, yeah, so it's totally necessary. Very good. That's Bryce Edwards there, lecturer in government and public policy at Vic. Uh, just I didn't get your answer on that. Do you support a lobbyist register here? No, and you'd, be, you'd be it would be really hard to define who is one. Uh, and you don't support the, one? The, no, I don't. And the, country, the countries that have them, the little challenge is you start to separate these lobby firms from real live people, mum and dad and others and, and rotary clubs that want to say something to a politician. Do they have to be lobbyists? Yes, they do. They and, have to be registered as well. But that's ridiculous. So everybody Why? gets registered, right? So if you talk to a politician in the Koru Club at 6 o'clock on a Thursday night because you happen to be having a beer next to them, all of a sudden you've got to register as a lobbyist. That seems rather strange. And the, the experience of Australia and the US and other countries that do it is it does not stop corruption. If the process is going to be corrupt, then it's just correct. Okay. All right, we'll come back to this perhaps tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, Phil O'Reilly and Verity Johnson with me this afternoon. 18 past four of the panel. If you are employed by... Did you want to say something? No, 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 moving your no, pen. no, no. <laughs> If you're employed by a living wage business, wages have increased nearly 10%, up $2.35 on the 2022-23 rate. The living wage movement said the wage has undergone a full recalculation, resulting in thousands of workers receiving a pay increase. Now, employers who take part in the living wage movement argue to pay their employees the set amount per hour. Launched in 2012, AMP Wealth Management and Blue Carrot Catering are two of the many on the site that are living wage employers. With us is Charles Watergrave from the Family Social Policy Research Unit was behind uh, the living wage. Actually, kia ora, Charles. Uh, kia ora. 
Tell us, tell us more about it. It is set apart from the minimum wage, isn't it? Which is twenty two dollars seventy. Yes, yes. And the uh, living wage um, that's been set uh, for this year, which doesn't come into effect until the first of September, is twenty six dollars. So, um, uh, I mean, the difference is it's it's not um, required by law. It's an aspirational uh, target. It's put to um, employers uh, who who want who are concerned to you know have uh, to be assured that workers have sufficient to live uh, modest, uh, albeit reasonably minimal, um, lives with, with the amount of money that they're uh, paid for. You know, for a working week. So I looked on the side, and there are 370 employers, uh, and they all up encompass around about 52,000 employees. So really not insignificant uh, by any means. And interestingly, across the range from the big banks down to your small catering, um, I guess my big question and thought would be, it would be quite a commitment from the employer to agree to a living wage. Why do they come on board? Well, I think they come on board because there's a recognition that uh, New Zealand's been a low-paying uh, country uh, on the whole. And, um, I mean, just look at how we're losing uh, nursing staff at the moment to Australia. You know, we've always lost labour to um, Australia. And, and really, um, when people work, uh, if they're working for a week, they should be able to live at least modest lives that are comfortable, uh, not with a whole lot of excess, but uh, are comfortable and are able to um, have sufficient food and pay for housing. But of course, it all relates to a whole range of other things. I mean, we've we've basically got a, a you know a serious housing problem in New Zealand. So rents go up all the time uh, at, at 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 quite an extraordinary rate. And we all know that food costs have gone up, and the minimum wage um, actually went up seven point two percent anyway, which is not uh, not hugely different. I mean, there is a lot of inflation around at the moment. Okay, now if you are if you if you are uh, one of the fifty two thousand people who do uh, will be receiving this uh, twenty six dollars an hour in September, why don't you get in touch with me two one zero one? Tell me what a difference it'll make to your life. Now, Verity Johnson, I know that you're a, that you employ people. You're a you're a small business owner, uh, I guess. What are your thoughts? issues with this? Two people. So, <laughs> most okay. of it, where most of our staff are actually contractors, not employees, sure. so it doesn't apply in the same way. Okay. Um, but in terms of employees to employees. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel torn wherever I have these conversations because I understand one half of me who has worked on minimum wage in minimum wage jobs that the difference between $22 and $26 is significant, and so the difference that it makes to me as the person who works those jobs is massive. Interesting now being the person who is like actually paying people, I'm like, oh my god, this is so such a huge difference in terms of like your overheads and how much, you know, as a business that you're making, the difference on your bottom line is massive. And so um, I feel incredibly conflicted in the sense that I have a lot of respect.
respect for the living wage and I think it's a thing. But I also understand that there'll be a lot of small business owners out there right now who'll be sitting there being like, oh my God, there's no point in me having my own business. There's been a real interesting... Really? Isn't that, a, isn't that catastrophizing it a bit? No, Verity? no. In all honesty, every small business owner I've spoken to over the last 18 months has said basically a version of it. There is no point in me running my own business Have you now. had a look at the uh, 370 employers on that site? Yeah. It's a very... The, the cross-section is quite incredible. Oh, it's good. Like, I am absolutely 110% in favour of it. That's why I say the half of me that works these jobs agrees with it. But I also understand that the pressure on the small business owners and the people who right. have got cafes is massive. Stay there, Charles. We'll come back to you, Phil. Well, I have a great deal of time for Charles Watergrave and the, and the work that he does. Uh, g'day, Charles. Um, hi, hi, Phil. And uh, so, so he, he said the right words right at the start. If it's a voluntary thing, and you buy into it, well, good for you. I would never advise an employer to do that. The reason is I, I'd be happy for them to pay more. It's not to say pay less. I just wouldn't necessarily buy into a, into a, into a thing that says someone else is going to tell me the minimum. I'd rather have a situation whereby I can flex, I can pay more for skills, I can pay more in certain circumstances around the country. That's not an argument to lower wages. That's not the point. The point is to have some flexibility to, to talk to my workforce about about how I might pay them and for what skills and so on. Now, the challenge, I think, is that this is starting to turn from being a voluntary thing. It's great. And I, by the way, I'm really cynical about the banks joining it. God, really? They would never they wouldn't have wouldn't have anybody close to this sort of payment. Anyway, so that's just, <laughs> they're on the site, though. Exactly. They're B&Z, for example. But they've for only example. got like five people in the business who are making it. AMP Wealth Management. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just cynical about Get that. Aspiration. Oh, I'm a, I'm Get aspirational, Phil. No, it's, it's about not signing up to this particular thing. Now, the, the, yeah. the point here is that um, if you... Uh, it, the, the worry I've got is not when it's voluntary, it's when it starts to become required. If a local government person says to you, the only way you're going to get a contract is if you pay the living wage, or a central government agency says, the only way you're going to get to pay this, to get this contract is if you pay the, the living wage. And there's a bit of that starting to happen. That's what worries me. Not the, right. not the good work that Charles is doing and those that volunteer for it, good for them. I wouldn't do it myself, but I understand the point. Charles, to respond to both. Yes, well, I mean, the living wage is, transparently set out uh, as it has been today uh, with each item so when you um, go through food you know it's taken from the Otago University um, uh, Department of Nutrition their food cost survey which sets out the minimal amount that's um, needed for you know a household of two adults and two children uh, when it comes to housing costs it's it's based on the um, MB rent bond database, uh, you know, from that ministry that sets out the lower quartile, that's the uh, bottom 25% uh, of housing prices, uh, rent prices in the country and so on. So wherever there is um, uh, any uh, measure of these things, they are used and it's transparent and you can look at it and it goes through the standard items um, you have in the Household Economic Survey database. So um, it's a bit hard, I think, when you're talking about uh, a bottom line that that uh, you, you can have you can exercise rewarding some people and not rewarding others. I can understand that for that which is above the living wage, but I don't find it a very convincing argument for for the living wage um, itself. Is it growing? It's been around since 2012. Is it growing? Oh yeah, it's growing all right, and and more and more people are joining it, and it's have and it's also having an important effect on the minimum wage. It's it's amazing. I'm I'm quite staggered actually. 
the the buy-in to it and the sense of satisfaction that employers that are involved in it have when when they know their workers are at least going home um, with uh, sufficient for, for for at least uh, a modest quality of life. Are uh, our panelists hearing this? Are two naysayers. Are you both? Are you both hearing this? It's actually beca- it's become quite a movement. It's embedded. It's been around since 2012. And what do you do when you pay people fairly well? You get buy-in. You get people who want to come to work. They wake up and go, "I want to be part of Verity Johnson's bullies. I want I to be part that. of Iron Duke Partners." I get. I really do get that. I get that it makes people who are working for it more committed to it. You are 100% into it. And like I said, the half of me that's worked those jobs understands the difference that it makes. But I think I also have a lot of sympathy with small business owners who, when you work out, like I did this the other day and I worked out I pay myself $14 an hour. And I know there's a lot of small businesses who are out there being like, God, I don't pay myself the minimum wage. So I'm not saying I don't agree with the living wage. I do. I'm also just saying that I have a lot of sympathy with all the owners out there who are working freaking 36-hour days. Sure. And Charles, no problem with paying people more, just that particular way of doing it. Charles, lovely to have you on the programme to explain. Kia ora. Okay, kia ora. Uh, that is uh, Charles Watergrave from the Family Social Policy uh, Research Unit. A disappointing in Phil and Verity's stance on the living wage <laughs> and how they wouldn't adopt it. <laughs> That's uh, not what we said. We didn't say that. <laughs> uh, uh, why, uh, why, why, um, gosh, yes, get some balance. Why so many right-leaning panellists? It's not a reflection <laughs> of society. So that you're being schooled. It's the first time in my life I've ever been you're called right-wing. You've been schooled. Um, oh, hi there. I pay my staff a living wage. I don't pay myself all the hours I work in order to pay my wonderful staff. It's going to be hard for my little business to go up to 26 bucks an hour, but it is the minimum amount I will pay my staff. Step up, employers. Natalia from the Felt Princess Wool shop, Dunedin. Perfect. Let's all go by. Is that wool shop, right? Yes, it is. Perfect. There we go. Um, 29 past four. We don't have time for We might uh, do it tomorrow, actually. Just email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. I want someone who was, was made redundant uh, and really didn't know where to turn. Suddenly came up with an idea, and next minute they're flying or not. It didn't work out. I'd love to hear your story. Email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. But we did get a lot of feedback uh, to both I've been thinking, but specifically Verity's one, who is sick to the back teeth of public transport, just sick to the back teeth. Uh, and on this point, people do agree with you, Verity. Wallace, says Anne, lack of buses. It just shows how dependent society is on low-paid workers. Pay bus drivers more, and more people would take up the job. Same with nurses. Used to be a bus from here straight to Auckland, went on the motorway, straight to work in about an hour. Now, I have to take the train, two connections, one bus link, two and a half hours, and that is if everything connects. It's not good enough says this person. You're on the panel on RNZ National. We have Phil O'Reilly and Verity Johnson with us. It's 4.30. It's time for headlines.